Hi, everyone. My name is Kyle Vitaru from the GDELT Project, and welcome to the MongoDB Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the GDELT Project and about this broader issue of how do we transform all this incredible data that we have today to real-world insights that enable us to make actual decisions about the world. This is the MongoDB Podcast. As ever, you're very welcome. My name is Shane McAllister, and in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Kalev Lataru. Kalev was named one of Foreign Policy Magazine's Top 100 Global Thinkers in 2013. He was a Yahoo Fellow in Residence of International Values, Communications, Technology, and the Global Internet at Georgetown University, as well as a council member of the World Economic Forum's Global Agenda Council on the Future of Government. His work has been profiled in the press and media of more than 100 nations. This work focuses on how innovative applications of the world's largest datasets, computing platforms, algorithms, and mindsets can reimagine the way we understand and interact with our global world. Kalev is the founder of the GDEL project. GDEL stands for Global Database of Events, Language, and Tone, and the GDEL project monitors the world's broadcast, print, and web news from nearly every corner of every country in over 100 languages and identifies the people, locations, organizations, themes, sources, emotions, counts, quotes, images, and events driving our global society every second of every day, thus creating a free, open platform for computing on the entire world. The GDEL project was also the subject of the MongoDB Hackathon, ran earlier this year from April to May in advance of the MongoDB World event in New York. During this hackathon, over 600 global registrants used the GDEL dataset along with MongoDB products such as Atlas, Search, Charts, Functions and Triggers to create innovative projects showcasing this enormous global data archive. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Kalev. Welcome to the MongoDB podcast. Today, my guest is Kalev Litaru, and Kalev is from GDELT. And GDELT needs a lot of explaining, I think. But Kalev, first of all, welcome to the show. It's delighted to have you. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So we first met back in April of this year. Um, MongoDB were building a hackathon uh, around our MongoDB World event that we were running in June. And we chose this amazing large data set that we knew existed on the web. And we started to build our hackathon team around that. And then after doing our first live stream on this hackathon event, Kalev got in touch with us. And I should have expected that because somebody who monitors data on the web on a daily ongoing basis should obviously pick up uh, mentions of their main project. So, Kalev, you know, for those that are not familiar, why don't you do, say, a proper introduction to yourself, but more so to the GDEL project um, and the history behind that? Yeah, so the GDEL project is, is really this grand vision of how can we leverage massive computing power to try to understand planet Earth? So mm -hmm. essentially, in real time, every day, we're scooping up news media from across the world. And one of our real unique focuses is trying to reach local news in local languages across every corner of the world. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and this is really different. You know, you, you think about so much of the work on news analytics these days is bad. You know, someone scraping a couple RSS feeds. Uh, in, in fact, mm-hmm. um, when Gino first really came, really sort of started entering the social sciences space, it was really interesting because there's this law, you know, there's in a lot of fields, there's kind of this idea, like literally sort of this quasi motto. If it's not in English in the New York Times, it didn't happen or it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yes, you know, it's not relevant yes. to the world. Um, and so that was a that was a big thing of how do we you know how do we really reach across the world and that requires a very different mindset of working country by country with local organizations across the world to catalog the news to find ways of ingesting that news. Uh, it requires a lot of interesting thought. Uh, you know, one of the, the fascinating things about data analytics today is the fact that. Uh, you know, we, we really have these pipelines that are oftentimes very mm-hmm. English centric, uh, that, you know, Unicode is still scary, you know, frighteningly enough, still a foreign concept to a lot of pipelines. So there's so much technical work. Uh, but then, and, and, and I think one of the things that's most relevant to, to today's episode is this question of, well, you know, as you reach across the world, how do you derive meaning from that? You know, how do you reach across the world's languages? And then once you start creating this, this fire hose uh, mm-hmm. of global events, like what do you do with that? And, and so if you kind of think of it, you know, if we kind of step back a little bit, digital is really this idea of this fire hose of news media pouring in. We monitor 150 languages today, soon to be over 400 languages. Uh, we translate 65 of those in real time. So essentially this, this fire hose of news coming in from across the world, entering in, and that's online news. Now in collaboration with the Internet Archive, uh, mm-hmm. we're also working with them on unlocking television news. So they have an archive of over 98 channels uh, that spans 50 countries and territories, over 35 languages and dialects, uh, portions of which stretch back more than 20 years. Uh, and so- wow, wow. that's- and- you have 20 years. Like, when did it start? How did it come about, Colin? Like, Yeah, so the Genome Project uh, really traces lineage. Uh, you know, uh, over a quarter century ago, uh, I was actually in, in eighth grade uh, building uh, web uh, authoring software, the early days of the web, uh, started doing large-scale web crawling, large-scale web mining, sort of a, a tiny sort of genome in this tiny, tiny early nascent <laughs> stage. Um, mm-hmm. And trying to see, like, what would it look like if you could crawl, again, back then from a home computer, if you could sort of crawl news in the web, bring that in, run data mining on it. Uh, then I was mm-hmm. an undergrad, actually, at the National Center for Supercomputing Applications, uh, and then a grad okay. student there. Um, and then using really, really big machines to really pull in. But again, the same idea of what if you could use the web as a knowledge base, scoop that, you know, sort of ingest the web and run all these ever more sophisticated data mining algorithms on there um, to sort of catalog. And, you know, a simple example back then we found was was creating bibliographies. So, for example, a faculty member mm-hmm. would come along and say, you know, I'm really interested, you know, again, this is before Google Scholars, before all these different databases existed, could you just scrape the web and find all the, the most heavily cited papers about a particular topic, maybe food insecurity okay. in a certain area or, or some topic, and we could generate these bibliographies. We could look at the context in which they appeared in. Just simple, simple examples that you might say that's trivial, but yet that was transformative in certain domains. So this moved from a pet project, for want of a better word, into something that you're you're doing and have been doing for quite a long time, full time. And take it back to, I know you're scraping all this data and you're getting all this data, and, and, and I really want to dig down into the, the languages and the fact that you've gone global and international with this. And yes, we live in a very English-centric world. But I suppose... Why does it matter to gather? A lot of data is transient, right? Particularly news data. Why does it matter to capture this? Why does it matter to have the snapshot of this? How has it helped or how does it help news agencies or journalists or research bodies, et cetera? 
Yeah, so, you know, that's the thing. So you can imagine sort of this, this fire hose of news coming in. You might say, well, why mm-hmm. bother? You know, what's the point? Mm-hmm. And so uh, a great example of this actually is 10 p.m. Eastern time, December 30th, 2019. Right, tell me. This is, you know, this is a little bit ago. At 10 p.m. Eastern time on December 30th, 2019, uh, no one in the epidemiological community was watching Wuhan, China, looking for the next pandemic. Uh, but mm-hmm. through the power of the fact that we're monitoring local news and local languages, languages around the world, we saw this sudden, uh, this sudden anomalous spike of, uh, uh, at the time period, it was described as a SARS-like viral pneumonia of unknown origin. And we saw that wow. crystal clear in the data, kind of this, this big spike there. Um, again, the rest of the world wasn't talking about it. And even then, um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, no one was seeing it as a future pandemic. They were seeing it as, as, local, mm. as a local event. Um, so using our data, a company up in Canada called Blue Dot Global, um, they monitor our data and they do actually biosurveillance. And their models then saw that in our data. And the following morning, then their human epidemiologist stepped in, looked at it and said, wow, this is actually really serious. They overlaid in transportation and other data to say, wow. So then they sent out the following day a, a worldwide alert saying, hey, you know, there, there's a really good po- possibility of a global pandemic coming. Um, and so that's really the power of machines that's can the world. And draw our eyes to things that we we weren't even thinking about looking at, uh, and then and that's kind of this this to me one of the really powerful aspects is the machine can watch and point us and say hey you should really take a look at this the humans then can take a look at that and say wow this is this is huge and then send that out and also at the same time every URL for online news coverage every URL mm-hmm. that we we send that to the Internet Archive where they preserve it inside the Wayback Machine. So we actually at the same time are essentially preserving because online news is so ephemeral. And you think about Mm -hmm. why news? Well, news, you know, most of us, what we understand of the world around us is through news. Um, And so the ability to preserve all of that um, so that future generations can look back and say, well, gee, in, in, you know, back in December of 2019, what were people thinking about a future pandemic? What was kind of the discourse back then in the early days of the pandemic? It was only two and a half years ago, but it's sort of this, this foggy memory already to be able to look back and say sequence by sequence what, what actually happened around the world to preserve that, um, but then to, to understand the future events that are occurring around the world. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, as you say, it was relatively recently. None of us knew what was going to happen. Um, you know, we were pretty much oblivious in December 2019 as to what the world in, in March of 2020 was going to look like. So you mentioned earlier, we live in a virtual data fire hose. There must be data from every corner of the earth. Literally, we have terabytes, if not petabytes of data being created all of the time. Are we at data overload? What can we do about that? How does, you know, the tools and and the projects that you've been involved in help us deal with that? See, this this is to me one of the most fascinating aspects of the world we live in today. You know, we we have just so much data every day, more and more data pouring out. But what Mm -hmm. we lack really are the tools. You know, we, we essentially live in the world where data is less and less the limiting factor. And more and more, the limiting factor is how do we actually take that data and do something with it? And, you know, you think about annotation, think about video, for example, you know, in collaboration with the Internet Archive, we take a selection of television news every day uh, and we run it through video AI that does OCR, you know, recognizes the on-screen text, objects and activities and creates sort of this, this live catalog of these channels. Um, and from that, what you end up with is essentially this enormous archive of JSON, uh, hundreds of gigabytes, if not terabytes of JSON. Um, so mm-hmm. how do you go from a, a collection of terabytes of JSON to understandings of, you know, so in other words, 
how do we go from annotations to insights? Um, and so here's a good example of this. In the early days of the pandemic, we asked, how is television news today different than it was pre-pandemic? Uh, you know, I'm seeing all this, you know, when I turn on the television, I see everyone presenting from home. Um, so mm -hmm. anecdotally, I, I kind of understand that something major has changed. Uh, but, you know, what are the major changes? So we basically took that data and fed it to an anomaly detector. Um, and the first thing that, you know, basically the first thing that popped out was bookcases. So, you know, it's kind of like Hitchhiker's Guide <laughs> to the Galaxy. You know, like, what's the meaning of the universe? 42. Um, so, you know, the machine was like, well, what's different? Bookcases. Bookcases. So, I love you it. Know, and, I, and that's an interesting thing because we have these tools today that can do incredible annotation. Like a lot of video tools today, they'll annotate maybe 10 or 20,000 objects and activities. So it's sort of this fixed lexicon. So the machine could see mm -hmm. that bookcases were everywhere, but the machine couldn't understand why that is. So that's where the human <laughs> can then step in and say, well, in, in you know, at least in the U.S. and Europe, Bookcases are kind of the shorthand to expertise and knowledge and scholarliness. Um, and it was interesting because some channels did not that. see bookcases. Uh, some channels, bookcases did not rise. Um, and so you could kind of, so that was an interesting thing. So again, the machine can tell us, and this is, this is where, you know, you kind of say, well, we got this, you know, how do we go from, you know, we have this, this fire hose of video coming in. We use machines to annotate that. Now we then feed that to anomaly detection that can tell us bookcases are everywhere. So <laughs> the human then can step in and say, well, that's because this is shorthand. And this is where it gets really interesting. You can say, wow, we, we know anecdotally that bookcases are the shorthand, but wow, we can actually now see quantitatively just literally this vertical kind of source. Like everyone in America that rushed home uh, at the start of the pandemic who was on television, they found the one bookcase in their house or they bought a bunch of books and converted <laughs> a bookcase. Um, and, and that to me, it's, you know, again, like that powerful aspect, you know, and, and then, you know, you start asking, well, what else is useful about this? So one of the things that was really surprising to us was when we started doing video annotation, we thought that mm -hmm. journalists were going to want to do visual search of the news. Like that was going to be the dominant uh, interface. But we found actually what was most useful to them was the OCR. Uh, because what we found is it, it's really interesting when you think about, and this is going to be, I think, a, a big horizon, I think, for the analytics community. Right. So when we started doing this, we, we, like, well, we started off with television. How do we make television accessible to journalists? And so, you know, the first thing that we started with, well, we have these closed captioning, uh, you know, all in, in the U.S., all television news mm -hmm. has to be closed captioned. So we said, well, you know, people are used to, to doing a Google search. They know how to keyword search uh, stuff. So what if we just wrap keyword search around closed captioning so you can keyword search, get that. So that became something called the Television Explorer. Um, and what we did that was a really in innovative advance there is when we search, when you search traditional, whether it's any type of keyword search database, typically you just get search results. You don't get a timeline. Mm -hmm. But we realized immediately, and, and myself as a journalist as well, we realized that oftentimes the most important question is not what's being said right now, but is this more or less than the past? Like, how is it changing over time? Okay. Comparatively. Yes, yes. Comparative. So we added in this timeline. So that became a huge, huge thing. But then you think, well, what's the next step beneath that? So how do we take this video and transform it? So what we found there was OCR text is, is a natural thing. It's still text. I can keyword search it. Mm -hmm. So it's easier. Now it was still a lift because it was still kind of this idea of most people aren't used to, we think of television news as I sit in front of a television and I watch it linear, um, mm. you know, sort of the papyrus scrolling. Um, we don't <laughs> think of it as, as a non-linear format. So even the idea of keyword searching television was this huge, this huge um, leap 
for a lot of communities. And then the OCR search, and now kind of what we're really focusing on is how do we help with, with visual search? Like we have these incredible tools, but how do we teach people how to think visually? Like what are the questions mm-hmm. I might ask? Uh, you know, one right now is with Ukraine. Um, visual search allows us to see that military imagery of Ukraine has really collapsed. Here in the United States, we're not seeing, when we talk, when we talk about Ukraine, we're not seeing okay. imagery of fighting. We're just seeing, you know, just, just, oftentimes presenters in the United States. So again, this, this different, these okay. different levels, how do we search this material? Okay. I think it must be fascinating to see the differences around the world as well as to, you know, if you're talking about news media and visual, there are certain events that are obviously global events. You mentioned Ukraine there, obviously, and, and COVID prior to that. How do you surface up local events and also maybe as you say, I suppose the COVID example in Wuhan, how does a local event become a global event as well too? What patterns can you recognize there in terms of news and how it's being reported? You know, and this is where, again, the, the ability of, of data, you know, the ability to quantify a lot of things that we know qualitatively. So in journalism school, you know, you're taught, uh, you know, that basically when a story breaks, like a sudden break, like a like an earthquake or a natural disaster, that su- you'll have sort of the 70, it'll surge into the news, there'll be 72 hours of coverage, and then it will rapidly uh, fade away over the next week to two weeks. So that's mm-hmm. something that you're just taught anecdotally. But in our data, we can actually see that crystal clear. But most importantly, we can actually measure that in real time. So we can take a story and and we can actually, as a story breaks, we can actually measure it against that curve. And we can say, you know, this story is starting to deviate. We've seen that. We can actually mm-hmm, see stories mm-hmm. in the wild where um, all of a sudden they, they're following that. All of a sudden they deviate. And that's when we know this is no longer whatever the original story was. This is something else. This is an inorganic, um, you know, maybe it's been encapsulated into politics or something else. So we can see it kind of take on a different life. And the ability also to kind of see the, you know, how stories shift, but then this idea of sort of America to the rescue, anything that happens around the world, um, Mm -hmm. suddenly you see this, hey, now that affects us, now don't worry, we'll solve it. And to be able to actually see those, to quantify those, that to me, it really comes back to this, you know, if you think about like the state of AI, because I mean, you think about the advances of AI today, I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it's incredible. You think about like, you know, Gino's this fire hose of data. Um, We have text, we have audio, we have video, we have imagery, all four modalities. 10 years ago, we didn't really have good tools to take that imagery and that video and do much. And even audio is is real questionable. Um, We have the tools now to annotate this stuff. So you can imagine data pours in. Now we can annotate that stuff sort of that analytic side. And you think about today, AI, we really have AI annotation tools where they can take, say, a video and mm-hmm. create live frame-by-frame annotations. And then we have sort of these prompt-based models, you know, these, these large language models, large sort of world models. Um, but still, uh, you know, these, these prompt-based models, you think about today, you know, rewind the clock, December of 2019. I have annotation data is annotating all this material. And within that is the early days of COVID. Within a prompt mm-hmm. model, you have some of these some of these newer tools that can ingest a lot of that material. Um, but still, that would mean that in December, uh, December 30th, 2019, someone's sitting at one of these prompts saying, is there a pandemic coming from, from this area of Wuhan in this, you know, coming next year? It's still very much human centric. Um, and I think okay. one of the interesting kind of things that that the future really holds is this idea of, can machines take on more and more of a role of, you know, you think about GDEL. I mean, we're eight and a half trillion data points and climbing very, very rapidly. Wow. And you think about that much data, no human, every day, this fire hose of data coming in, <laughs> no human can go through that. 
So really what we need is kind of this, this blending of machines being able to look through that and say, hey, kind of drawing your attention to things, but not just presence. And I think this is a, a real danger. A lot mm -hmm. of the tools focus on anomalies in the positive direction, that all of a sudden something has burst into the scene. But okay. oftentimes the most interesting anomalies are things that have faded quietly that we don't even notice. Um, it's, you know, we're very good at detecting, hey, this is all of a sudden everywhere, but we're very bad at detecting, hey, something that was in the news everywhere is kind of faded it's away. Gone. And I suppose the, you know, as you said, machines are really good at crunching that data. AI and machine learning is getting better. We've got more powerful processors than we've ever had. We've more availability. We've more bandwidth. We've more cloud compute. But it is still ultimately some alert that goes back to a human to make a decision on that. And as you say, past events or the absence of news is, is, is crucial as well now. Yes, and, and that's one of the things that we're, we're finding with anomaly detectors. It's really crucial to look at both sides of that. You know, things that are mm -hmm. bursting into the scenes, um, but also things that have that have kind of risen very slowly. We we actually looked at uh, sunflower oil shortages uh, earlier this year um, mm. with the invasion of Ukraine. You saw all of a sudden, you know, there was kind of this this slow kind of rumbling of news coverage of you know this is going to potentially create real shortages in sunflower. And you saw a lot of governments around the world trying to prevent panic, so saying don't worry, don't worry. But you saw so if you look at like social media, you look at at search data, you didn't see a surge in in sunflower oil, but you saw it in news data. Okay. It was a kind of a slow, steady rise. It wasn't that kind of sudden burst that we think about. And so within our data, we saw that crystal clear that hey, this is a very very big rise. So we so it was flagged in our data as an anomaly two weeks before all of a sudden. It kind of burst into search data, wow. burst into social media. Um, and, and those are kind of, again, where the human, a human machine interaction, you think about um, with the Internet Archive, we have something called the Visual Explorer. So this was this was started with the invasion of Ukraine. We, we suddenly have um, we start monitoring Ukrainian, Belarusian and, and Russian television news. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, mm -hmm. you have speech recognition so we can generate transcripts of that. But war scholars um, and journalists, they're oftentimes more interested, they're less interested in what was said and more interested in how it was portrayed. You know, if you think about okay. this moment here in America, think about inflation. Um, when I talk about inflation, what's the image on the screen? Is it food? Um, is it um, children that can't eat, you know, that are starving? Is it gas mm -hmm. pumps? Is it prices at the store? Um, there's so many different images that I could use um, to sort of visualize inflation. So what is the imagery that's being used? So that's oftentimes in war, that's what scholars care a lot about. And same thing with COVID. When COVID occurred, is it, you know, who's telling the COVID story? Is it doctors? Is it presidents at podiums? Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. Is it are and people at the podium? If it's a president at a podium, are they standing there? Are they very confident? Are they standing sort of strong, confident? Don't worry, we're solving this. Or are they okay. very sort of beaten down, like we don't know what we're going to do here? Those are things where machines. Again, there's there's models that can do some of that, but that's where the machine can sort of say, here are the interesting, you know, here are sort of the segments to look at, and the human can kind of interpolate. So the Visual Explorer, we use machines to take this firehose of video data. Uh, and I use this example because we think about annotations, we usually think AI, but annotations can be anything. So in the Visual Explorer, what we did is, is we took this broadcast, we wanted to make television news skimmable. So you think about, we think about television, we sit at a screen, we consume it in a linear fashion. How do you make that <laughs> skimmable? So I can look at a one hour broadcast in a few seconds. So we wanted to break it into a grid of thumbnails. And there was a lot of work about, you know, how do you do it? Is it every couple seconds? Do you use, you know, different tools? In the end of the, at the end, we basically split it, um, Every four seconds, we extract one frame. We make a thumbnail grid. We can just rapidly scroll through a broadcast. 
And that turned out to be truly transformative because now I can take a broadcast in a few seconds, see, oh, this is mostly war footage. This is mostly um, politicians. Mm -hmm. This is more this or that. So I can rapidly skim this. And when I look globally across the world, I can rapidly get a sense of just how does television news differ across the world? How is it the same? How does it differ? This totally unlocked our ability to look at television. And this isn't AI. You know, this is FFmpeg, you know, an off the shelf, simple standard tool. And we just said, you know what? So it's that idea of taking this, this linear format of television, breaking into a thumbnail grid, then generating these, these images and basically creating an interface around that. So sometimes annotation for like to sometimes to transform, to unlock massive archives might not be, you know, it might not require state of the air AI running of these yes. massive GPU clusters. It could be something very simple, but again, it's that, that transformation using machines to transform, pet, in this case, petabytes and pet, I think tens of petabytes of video um, to something that a human can consume very rapidly. So you're essentially doing the, you know, in the developer world, we've lots of specs and scope documents. And usually somebody who's been nice to you as a developer, if you have to read their document, gives you a nice TLDR at the top, you know, too long, don't read. But if you need to read something, here's the summary. So you're doing a TLDR for news. I would love to be able to uh, catch an hour's worth of news in a much shorter space of time. And we all have reduced attention spans. The internet is is responsible for pretty much that. I know all of the conversation has been about news and media, and I know that GDEL doesn't really look at social, and a lot of people today would consider that their news comes from social feeds, but there's a reason behind that, right, Kalev, that you've, you've explained to us before? Yeah, I mean, social media, uh, it, it's interesting. So, you know, social media, A, the data is not as accessible, you know, sort of within these walled gardens. Mm -hmm. Um, but more, more importantly to us, so GDALT um, runs historically. So our total data set goes back 200 plus years. You know, for news, we go back to kind of the, the kind of late 60s, early 70s, which is kind of the, the rise of digital news. Although we are looking now, um, working on, on using OCR at historical archives to bring that. And we have actually, um, for books, brought that back over 200 years. Um, so, you know, but social media, it captures a very tiny fraction of kind of our history. Um, mm -hmm. Because again, for us, we, we often, we want to look at history to understand because something happens today. Is this important? Well, I need history to help me interpret that. Uh, but also social does not, it, it only captures, if I want to know how well you like your pumpkin spice latte in downtown Manhattan, <laughs> to me it's a wonderful place. I'll get so many reactions to that. Or cats or dogs or, or exactly, any of that sort of exactly. thing. Exactly. But when I'm looking across the world, a lot less of that is reflected um, in social media. Um, and, you know, people, it, it's very interesting because there's, again, we, we have all these ideas that end up not necessarily being true. There's, there's kind of this, you know, common mm -hmm. belief that social media beats the news. Um, what we find is, you know, if I'm looking out my window and, you know, a tree blows down and I tweet that, yes, I beat the news there. But of in major events, what we find is that actually news technically, like what happens is social might have a few little blips, but oftentimes okay. not for a lot of things. It's the news that breaks it. And then social kind of digests it and, and does its, its, its kind of this amplification of it. But the trick is with news. So in 2015, I looked at wildlife crime around the world. I want to understand elephant poaching and all these different things. And when okay. I started that project, I was told, don't bother because the news media doesn't cover that. You know, it's just not something the news media talks about. But it turns out it was all over the world, but it was in local news. And I think that's the key that people don't oftentimes think about. And, you know, going back to your point of like the, you know, the, the sort of the summary of news, if you step back, I mean, G don't really focuses on news. But if you step back, it's this broader question of, Every organization today has so much data. You know, they, they have data from more and more sources. 
Um, news is a great example. It was never designed for machine consumption. News is designed for humans to consume. So how does a machine understand data that was never designed for machines? And every organization has this issue of all this internal data. So yes. how do we think about um, you know, creativity, I mean, how, you know, a good portion of GDEL, we think about the technical architectures of GDEL, but so much of it is really about the uh, reimagining how we think about how we interact with data. You know, so much of GDEL, there's really this question of like, we start with television. How could you make television accessible? Uh, you know, how do you make it, you know, so journalists and scholars and even and public policy officials, you know, uh, how do they interact with that? What are the very different needs? Because different interfaces, different ways of interacting with data. Uh, when we think about um, online news media, what are the different, you know, think about it, it's got text, it's got imagery, um, all this kind of metadata, schema.org, all this different metadata that sits within that. You have layer mm -hmm. upon layer upon layer upon layer. News changes. On the online world, um, news is rewritten. Uh, really, even tier one news outlets today, they're blogs. They're not like printed news outlets anymore. True, they're true. They very much change. So you have all these different feeds. How do you combine all of that? You know, if you think about these different lenses, how do we combine that? So, you know, think about every organization today. They have all these different, each lens, so all these different data styles, there are all these different lenses to that organization's existence. Whether, you know, if you're a, a consumer products company, you've got everything from your warehouses to your suppliers, all this different data mm -hmm. feeding in. How do you unify that data? Uh, how do you think more creatively about, so oftentimes, you know, if you think about like warehouses, a lot of the data focuses on, let me look at my inputs and outputs, what's going into the warehouse, what's going out, the speed, all this good stuff. Um, but we don't think creatively about, well, what are some of the other questions that we can ask about this data? You know, what are the, oftentimes in companies, we get siloed into these very narrow classical questions. And I think one of the real interesting things is, how do we think creatively about data? How do we reimagine the very questions that we can ask with that data. Mm, I think it's um, it's fascinating, and we, we started off talking about the fire hose of data that's around the world, and, and I actually have done a disservice to our listeners because I never explained what GDELT stood for. So, do you want to tell us about that? Because it's fascinating. You've you've applied essentially some parameters to your data as well, too, in language and tone, but. Let's go into GDELT a little bit more because as a project, it's public and available and for people to consume and to use that data. So what types of databases, uh, data do you have? How do we use it? And But let's start with what GDELT stands for and ultimately what the L and T stand for in GDELT as well too, because I think that's a fascinating breakdown of data. Yes, no, yes, it's fantastic. So, so the GDEL projects, GDEL stands for the Global Database of Events, Language, and Tone. Um, and there's a fascinating trajectory to GDEL. So, you know, GDEL really started about this idea of events. So can we take mm -hmm. the news media and extract out codified events, protests, primarily, you know, things that affect societal stability? Because that's, you know, what, you know, specifically social scientists typically, that's how they typically sort of codified the news. Sure. Geopolitical events, really, you know, things that are going on in the world. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, so that's where GDELT started. But then a colleague of mine, an, an old mentor, he, one of the things that he mentioned is he said, you know, there's oftentimes really good ways of knowing where the tanks are in the streets. What we lack oftentimes as we try to understand the world around us is mm -hmm. the narratives that underpin that. Uh, because at the end of the day, he said, you know, if there, if a, a coup breaks out in some country or there's a famine, by that point, there's not a lot that we can do. Uh, you know, there, there's some things, but kind of there's not a lot you can do. What you want to know is those earliest glimmers of mm -hmm. you know, instability or, for example, a famine, you know, kind of these first glimmers of, hey, we're seeing more and more shortages across this. 
that's the point where you can really intervene to stop, you know, to address that famine before it really becomes a big deal. So it's, it's about understanding narratives that underpin that. So if you think about it at the top level is things are physically manifest at this point. Mm -hmm. Before that you have narratives. Now, before even that is emotions, kind of this, these, you know, maybe a sound like take here in the U S kind of this idea of the economy you have at the highest level, the government changes the interest rates or mortgage rates change. Something changes. You have kind of the or the price of food changes. That's the physical part. Mm -hmm. Beneath that, before that are kind of the narratives. Are, you know, are we hearing that interest rates are gonna go up? Are we hearing that food is, that there's gonna be food shortages? But then beneath that are this corner of this, as a society, are we optimistic about the future? Are we more gloomy? Are we anxious? Are we scared? You know, these are all these, these fascinating kind of layers, like an onion, essentially, these different layers. Mm. So Gito started with events, then it kind of moved in the narratives, then it moved into emotions. Now, okay. so that all focus on text. Um, at the time period, again, imagery plays a huge role in the news, but the AI tools just didn't exist for it. So then the AI tools, there was kind of this moment in 2013, 2014, kind of 15, 16, where the image tools got better and better and better and better, and most importantly, globalized um, so they could deal with a globalized world. So then we were able to add imagery to that. So then, mm -hmm. you know, speech recognition tools kind of reached a certain number of languages, a certain ability. So now we can add audio broadcast to that, you know, radio. Now video kind of reaches that point where it's tractable. You can actually ask real questions of it. So now we were able to add video to it. So Gino's trajectory kind of follows, A, the trajectory of, of AI annotations. True. But really kind of that, that pivoting, that you know, you think about startups, we often, you know, people oftentimes talk about pivoting. Um, so for us, it was less pivoting and more kind of expansion that we realized that mm -hmm. events are, are central to a lot of things, um, but then we kind of grow outwards. Now, an interesting development as well was early on, GDAL, it was strictly our annotations. So you would see the world mm -hmm. was essentially our annotations, whether that was topics, emotions, et cetera. Uh, but more and more people, they have their own models. And, and really a driving factor of this was people start coming to us and saying, hey, you know, I've got this model that understands a certain type of protest. We've got an entire GPU cluster of a thousand plus GPUs. This model is immense. You know, how can we run that on, on data? So one of the things that we start looking at is so GDO oftentimes is used as an index. You use us to find news coverage of relevance that you didn't even know existed. And then okay. you take that URL from us, crawl it and do something with. But then also n-grams. So word frequency histograms can kind of enable you to do. And this is the same thing with television. We're starting to look at, at n-grams for television. So GDO is entirely open data. Really, so everything that we produce, we, we sort of ingest this fire hose. Absolutely every annotation, whether it's a, a video JSON, whether it's an image cataloging an OCR, whether it's textual topics, emotions, et cetera, what we essentially produce is essentially this, this growing set of data sets that are all open data mm -hmm. annotations. You can go to GDAL's website today. Uh, we have, and this is also, again, um, one of the interesting things, we have kind of three interface points to it. One is for some of our data sets, we have user-friendly APIs. You go to it, you can keyword search, like television, online news, you can keyword search it, get back those timelines, get back a set of results. Um, so that's for people that maybe, especially maybe you're a journalist, you're on a, a deadline, you don't know how to download a petabyte of data and process it, nor do you have the resources. Nor do you want to, yeah. Exactly, you just want to kind of get into it. Then we had the folks that they want the simple uh, annotations, they want the high level, like just give me a list of um, the core topics that are mentioned in television this week or online news, because I just want to kind of look at it from a more topical standpoint. I can do data analysis, but I don't have a lot of compute power. Then you have the folks that want 
richer annotations. So they want to mm-hmm. download a little bit more of the annotation data. Maybe they care about you know the mid codes that are like the the actual specific ID codes that kind of disambiguate different uh, objects and activities. Uh, or maybe tell for me a little bit more about those ID codes because they were fascinating. I know when we were doing the hackathon and we'd participants in terms of categorization of events, and then on the other side of that too, you also had sentiment, a positive or negative sentiment attached to the data in GDELT. Can you explain a bit more about that? Yeah. So, so this is one of the interesting things. So when we talk about sentiment, um, I think a couple of years ago when I, I last did the study, about 97% of sentiment work came out of computer science. Um, we okay. work instead primarily with the psychology community. So, you know, we talk about if you want to measure anxiousness, the computer science, you'll, you'll hire a bunch of Amazon mechanical Turkers, code a bunch of things, come <laughs> up with some labels. Um, psychologists will say, well, how do you assess anxiety? Uh, and so they'll start coming up with definitions and then they go from there. So we today monitor about between two and 4,000 emotions from every article. And we just run all okay. of these off the shelf tools on top of it, wow. create all these different layers. So you can start really peering through the news in different lenses um, with different definitions. Um, you know, if you're interested more in primal anxiety, you know, I'm, I'm fearful of the monster around the corner or more anxiousness is in I'm kind of overwhelmed. We have mm-hmm. those different definitions uh, in the data. And that is, you know, really this, if, if you kind of step back, like that to me, like this idea of different access points, whether you have APIs, you have downloadable data, um, larger tools, this mm-hmm. ability to make data set available to different communities in different ways that they need, whether they want small data or large data. But then this different idea of different lenses on, whether it's emotion, whether it's uh, topics. And to go back to the, the ID codes, um, so this is, again, one of the things that we try to focus on is how do we give you different lenses onto the same question? So for, for example, for entities, um, mm-hmm. We have two major entity data sets, one where we just do noun phrase extraction for, uh, for content. And then we simply associate if there's a Wikipedia entry for that entry for that object, we associate the Wikipedia ID with it. Um, okay. But then we also uh, run it through more sophisticated NLP APIs uh, that look at things like um, the Freebase ID codes that, are, that go with mm-hmm. that. They try to do more disambiguation. If this is a mention of Biden, it knows, well, that's Joe Biden. If I talk about the president of the United States, that's also right now the same code um, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. So that's, again, I, I think one of the ideas of GDAL, if you think about GDAL, it's kind of two things. It's a production data set that that looks at all these different lenses, but it's also a research um, a research platform to look at mm. what would it look like? So one of the things that we're looking at right now is like speech recognition. What are the different ways that I can do speech? You know, how do I go from, say, a Russian news broadcast to translated, transcribed uh, material that I, as a non-Russian speaker, can understand? Mm. Mm-hmm. What are the different tools that exist to do that? What are there different trade-offs there? You have the kind of the speed performance trade-off. Um, there are tools that can produce incredible annotations, but require hours upon hours of the highest end GPU that's made today. Um, Understood. So yeah. That's kind of something we look at oftentimes is, you know, what is kind of the horizon of these tools? What can they enable? So if you look at our blog, so the GDL has a blog, um, just blog.gdelproject.org, and you mm-hmm. see this stream of both here's a new production data set that you can use today completely open you can build you know build new tools on top of it um, but then also here's a new application we we're demoing this particular tool what would it look like to run this tool across this material to kind of seed ideas and point people in different directions i love that i think it's great i, I know we spent time on the blog and the seeding of ideas were great there i know in during the hackathon that we ran in april and may and we had 600 plus people registered and they had a they had a bit of a learning curve because it's such a large data set but hey we're mongodb we 
work with Lauren Day in a sense. That's what we like to do. And so one, my colleague, Joe Drumgool, um, and the other colleagues on the hackathon with me built a GDELT loader to get GDELT information or a snippet of GDELT information into MongoDB really easily. You could, you could time band it. So you could say, I'm going to take three months of GDELT. Here are the dates that I'm interested in. You know, please go through that, um, import it, put it onto my cluster, and therefore I can work with it there. And that was great. We saw some really interesting projects. The ultimate winner of the hackathon built a almost like a virtual newsroom where you played the role of the editor and you were deciding what topics were going to make it to the front page. And you use the GDELT data set to help you pick the most prevalent, most frequent topics globally to decide what your front page of news is going to be. And it, it was super nice. But particularly because we've lived through two plus years of COVID, lots of projects were also using GDELT and using that sentiment that you mentioned, Carlo, uh, to pick out only good news. And GDELT as well is, as you, you know, the G is global and everything is geolocated. So they were picking out good news in their country. And, and these projects were great. We were seeing projects from all around the world. And they're saying, look, yeah, most news broadcast generally is, you know, isn't necessarily the positive news. You know, it's always the bad things that are happening around the world. So quite a number of projects use both the sentiment and the location to produce a news feed of good news. And I loved how they did that as well, too. But the beauty for me was the variety of ways that you can interpret the news that you've been categorizing and cataloging all of this time. And, and you, as you say, you can go back 20 plus years and even further as, as well, too. Yeah. And, and that, to me, is the greatest power of open data. You know, I've got tons of ideas, but, mm -hmm. you know, I just scratch the surface of what's possible. So this is what I love about openness every day. You know, again, because GDELT is open, I'm always the last to find out when, you know, what people <laughs> do with it. And it's just every day I see just the most amazing things. There was a, a postdoc who did this amazing tool tracking how people, um, how people were describing refugees around the world. You know, refugees okay. are, and then looking at the phrases that appear after that, um, there was some great work on finding the happiness in the world. Mm. Uh, there's been, you know, incredible work on, you know, whether it's disease uh, tracking or wildlife crime, um, just the, the huge breadth of them. And some of them, you know, powering, for example, um, the European Union's asylum agency, um, mm -hmm. uh, they actually used, they actually uh, did a paper, I think, in, in Nature Reports, where they actually used GDL to power um, their risk forecasting system, actually look at refugee inflows. Um, uh, so it's incredible when you look every day of both like powering these, these production systems that change the world, and then all these amazing creations creative projects, you know, the, the creation mm. of these foundational systems that people use everywhere. And, and that to me is, is the real power of open data. The fact that I can create this data set and, you know, every day people use it to do the most amazing things. And, and that to me, just, it's just so amazing to just, you know, watch what people can do and to be able to sort of unlock people's creativity, point them to things that they never thought about mm -hmm. and just kind of like, to teach people to reimagine the world. I mean, that's really what GDEL is, is it, it helps people think, it helps them to sort of, we, we oftentimes get in these, these boxes, these silos, because we're constrained by the data we have, we're constrained by the tooling that we have. And, uh, you know, GDEL, it's so massive. And that actually oftentimes is a challenge because it spans <laughs> everything. It's quite daunting at first. I mean, I know when we first got started with it and the participants, they were going, you know, I can't work with this. This is massive. One of the concerns were, can they, you know, even a small subset 
three months, six months of data. How big was that going to be? What size MongoDB cluster would be needed to house that data so that people could work locally on it? And it's fascinating that I think as technology, as you said earlier, continues to improve and things continue to grow. Yes, storage is less of an issue these days. We think of the cloud as the cloud, but there are actual disks sitting in actual machines still storing this data. But I think compute is obviously going to be one of the things that is going to become you know, superbly advanced in terms of that machine learning and AI that you speak about. What's next for GDELT? Where, you know, is it more of the machine learning AI or is there some other avenues that, you know, you're saying you're constrained with at the moment that you'd love to get in there, but you don't have access to the data or can't crunch it or can't infer kind of analysis out of it just yet? Yeah, and you know, and, and to your point, by the way, of, of kind of the compute, I will say when, when GDELT, you know, a decade ago when, when GDELT first launched, uh, what was amazing about it was it would take me, I could run a query. If I want to know our events increasing or decreasing in a country, that would take me almost a day uh, running on my okay. local uh, works. You know, <laughs> I, had, I had a nice little Dell server sitting in my house and, you know, it would take a day to run a, a basic uh, query just because of the hardware, the software that existed at the time period. Hmm. And, you know, as the tooling got to the point where you could search it real time, that fundamentally changes it. And people don't oftentimes appreciate that when I know if I'm going to run a query and I know it's going to take me a couple of hours, I fundamentally self-limit the questions I'm going to ask. I say, you know, yes. this is a hugely By nature. important yeah. question, but I know that there's probably not going to be a useful result. So I'm not going to bother running it because I can't afford to spend hours and hours waiting for it. When it becomes real time, suddenly we move to that what if. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, when I start saying, you know, I wonder that's really when everything changes. And that's really what the, what the power of, of, of tooling today, uh, tools like Mongo are, are really you know, changing that. They're, they're fundamentally changing our ability to interact with data. Um, and and you know, in terms of the future, the biggest thing to me is at the end of the day, we are this fire hose of data coming in from across the world. What ultimately what we want to get to is at the end of the day, you know, my holy grail is a machine that can look through the news like a sort of a, a friendly HAL 9000, not the, the bad HAL 9000. <laughs> not the one that's going to push you through the bay door and kill you. Exactly, basically. exactly. Yes. You know, a machine that can literally read through all that material and both, and tell me what's important about the world, both what it knows that I need to know, but then also mm -hmm. the things that maybe I don't even know that I need to know or that I might find interesting. You know, and, and machines that can essentially read the news, take action about that, that can actually truly understand the news. So, you know, that involves multimodal, things that can look across television, radio, text, and imagery, mm. uh, systems that can process more and more languages. You know, that's been a huge focus of us. Um, you know, we monitor 150 today. Uh, we're pushing past 400 shortly. So that ability to kind of look ever, ever more across the world. But machines that can do more, more creative annotations, more sophisticated analyses. Uh, you know, we would love in television. So we produce every four seconds, uh, uh, basically a screen capture. We actually make that accessible mm. um, to now allow non-consumptive uh, visual analysis over television. Uh, you know, that's, I think, 1.9 billion images now and climbing rapidly. Oh, wow. And so you think about that, like, what could you do with that? I mean, there's so many possibilities. Well, I would love to be able to say, for example, like here's a here's a particular particular story. Find other stories like this, uh, and maybe a certain framing of a story. Like maybe I see a broadcast is about inflation. Uh, like a good example of this. So you know, there was a report yesterday. Uh, all these economists have said, hey, you know, we think there's a high chance of a recession coming in. 
Um, now, I remember mm -hmm. some of those names I recognized as a year ago saying there's zero possibility <laughs> of inflation. But, you know, when you, when you kind of search like, yeah, I can search a name by name by name by name. I would love a machine where I can say, find this story, but kind of find the trace this story um, to yes. where they said it wouldn't happen. Like a tool that could do that. Um, so, again, some of these are holy grail questions, but some of these we can approximate using tools that already exist today. So it's, it's really about higher and higher levels of reasoning on top of material. And this is what companies want too. You know, at the end of the day, companies, they have this fire hose of data. They run all these annotation tools, but companies don't want petabytes of JSON data. They don't want prompt-based models. What companies want are that kind of that, that live, either a machine that can point them to things that they care about. Um, but then on top of that, this human-machine interaction. And I think that's where the field is advancing so fast. I mean, it's studying to me every day, all the papers that come out. But, and again, just both the annotations, but then the tools that can harness this type of data. You think about, you know, MongoDB, this ability where you can put uh, whole fractions of GDAL into there and be able mm -hmm. to rapidly interactively query. Like the fact that this is no longer something where I'm looking at a year of, of expenditures and massive teams, the power today where I sitting at home can log into, you know, spin up some machines, install that software, load mm -hmm. huge amounts of data into it and, and just run with it. That is just so fundamentally transformative to the types of questions that can be asked. It, to me, I think that's the, the future is really as compute continues to make the impossible possible, the intractable mm -hmm. tractable, as more and more data comes online, as we have the compute that makes the tractable, the, the formerly intractable tractable, as we have AI tools that can do richer and richer annotations over all this material, and as we get tools that can reason over more and more of that anomaly at larger and larger scales, I think that really the future is so, there's so much possibility there. Um, you know, and, and think about even something as simple as fact-checking. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, if I'm, you know, we, we did a simple demo using embeddings. So we took television news, we went sentence by sentence in the closed captioning, built a sentence level embedding over that. And then we did a demo. We took a fact check off of factcheck.org, um, you know, microchips and vaccines. We just mm -hmm. took that and we said, scan television news for that. And, you know, you could keyword search microchips, vaccines, you got some stuff, but this embeddings found all that stuff about nanochips in uh, the mind control liquid, uh, you know, all this, all those different <laughs> ways of framing it. And it was able to find all of that. Um, that's something that we never even, it wasn't even a possibility. It wasn't even something over the horizon. It was a total impossibility. And today, again, thinking creatively about how can we use these tools, that to me, like, what could you do with that? Um, how could we think about debates? One of the things I'm very interested in is in an increasingly polarized world, how can we kind of show people like sort of a, I, call, I did a, a map uh, a couple of years ago about the, the global media system and how often news outlets link to each other. So I call okay. it a mm -hmm. map of the media. You could take, here are the media outlets that I consume the most. Here's where I exist in the universe of media. Now, again, some people might say, great. Some people might say, hey, wow, I'm missing a whole side of this, of this world over here. Um, so again, to, of course, to, so there's, an, there's a natural bias, right, depending on where you're receiving your media from and consuming your media from. And it really just boils down to, you know, your view of the world versus other parts of the world's view of the world as well. Give too. people visibility to help them see where they exist in the world. So it's, it's really this idea of the compute, the, the AI annotations and the reasoning systems, um, but then interfaces. I mean, even the Visual Explorer, I mean, we're just mm -hmm. taking an MPEG file, convert it to images. There's nothing, you know, it's FFmpeg with some wrappers around it, but mm -hmm. that was so transformed. I mean, that tool, that, that capability existed for a very long time. 
It was just, A, the compute now is to the point where we can do this tractably at this scale. Um, but again, at the end of the day, that was, that was an idea. It took the, I wonder, and the fact that the mm-hmm. tooling exists to be able to suddenly roll that out at scale. And then I think the Visual Explorer is a great example of that's, you know, that, that's an open source tool. It's a couple of wrappers around an open source tool. Um, you could have done this. There was no, it's not like AI where the tool just didn't exist. This all existed. Yes, yes. It was this thought, this idea to suddenly bring in the fruition. And that to me really, it really talks to the fact that there's, there's so many possibilities that exist right now uh, that just require someone to say, you know, I wonder. And to create it. <laughs> That's an amazing thought, yeah, and a great way to nearly get us towards the end of the show as well. This, you know, the data's there, the tools are there, the power and the compute is mostly there and growing all the time. So it is purely that question: I wonder what I can do with this, and how do I put it to good use, and how do I extract understanding from this? So for G Delta as a whole, like I'm a big fan. I love what you're building. I love what it is. How do I contribute to the community? How do people get involved in the project? Is it by building their own projects and showcasing them on your blog and and things like that? Yes. So that's a great question. So, you know, again, interfaces, we love when people build interfaces, whether like Mm -hmm. what you guys did, a loader into MongoDB, people built, built R modules and Python modules, all these different kind of connectors to different tools. And, and those are fantastic. That Because again, it, it lowers the burden. Because GDAL is this enormous data set. When someone sits mm. down like, wow, I want to use this in my project. And they stare at, wow, I'm looking at all this data. Like how, where, how, you know, wh- how do I actually, and especially every program. It could be quite use. daunting at the start when you, when you realize the sheer extent of it. Where do you even go? Exactly. And then what I also love is, again, the AI, the analytics world, if you think about it, the analytics world is changing so rapidly, uh, you know, there's, there's no way any single person. So, you know, if you're someone who specializes maybe in visual understanding of imagery, you know, mm-hmm. we've got so much data, we'd love to see you go with that. If you specialize maybe in new forms of entity or more forms of t- whatever your specialty is, take GDEL, do interesting, creative uh, things, whether that's answering a real... so. That could be answering a real world question. Like, I wonder how COVID television is changing. That could mm-hmm. be, um, we see a lot of people doing interesting scaling work. So we have these embeddings. We've got, I think, uh, over almost a billion embeddings now. You know, that's an unsolved research question. How can I do mm-hmm. efficient uh, stuff? So that could be a, to unlock new possibilities. That could be new types of annotation tools. Or it could simply be more new interfaces. Because one of the things that GDOT lacks right now, we have data, but not interfaces. How can you sure. take those firehose? and build an interface around it, a user interface, whether that's a prompt, whether that's a visualization, whether that's a a human interface, whether that's a totally automated uh, tool. Those are the type of things that I would love. And again, because GDL is all open, you can go today, you can download our data, you can do all kinds of things. And if you have something Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. interesting, send it to us. We love to feature these things on our blog. Excellent, excellent. And so we will put the links in the show notes, um, both to GDEL Project, which is gdelproject.org, uh, also to the hackathon. You can see some examples of what was built during the MongoDB hackathon with that, and, and other links to really, really interesting projects. I think we've got enough content here for probably getting you back in another number of months as well, too. I think 
you certainly you're on the pulse of everything that's happening. I love the analogy of, you know, what was the common theme of COVID? It was bookcases. Um, <laughs> I certainly think we can all relate to that. I need to get a bookcase behind me here instead of a bunch of old tech hardware, uh, obviously. <laughs> but this has been super fascinating. Anything to sign off to our listeners on, uh, Kalev? Anything, anything else that you didn't get through in, in our chat today? No, I think really at the end of the day, I mean, GDALT, uh, you know, again, it's the global database of events, language, and tone because this idea of looking across the world, if you think about the highest level vision isn't even news. It's really Mm -hmm. about this idea of how do we codify the planet, the events, the narratives, our global dreams and fears. How do you codify that in a way that allows us to better understand the world around us? Essentially, to look at the global heartbeat, to understand ourselves as a world, to, to look through the eyes of others. I mean, these are these grand visions of what would the world look like if I could see it through the eyes of everyone around me, of, of people on the other side of the world? Like Those are those grand challenge questions that we now have the data, the compute, the, the, pos- mm-hmm. the, the analytic tools to actually ask those questions. And so to me, this is the most exciting, I mean, it's such an exciting time to be, to be alive right now because, I mean, we're really at that cusp where there's so much movement across all of these fields. And, you know, GDL is open data for a reason, it, to allow people to build these incredible things, to, to really ask these incredible questions, to, to sort of seed creativity. I mean, GDL really makes it possible for you to say, you know, I wonder. And to just go from there, to take that data and do something amazing with it. And so really that's what I would love to call on people to do is just, you know, to be inspired, to, to ask those questions. And when you find fun things, send them to us. We would love to, to talk more about them. That's absolutely fascinating. And, and this has been a superb conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed it and learned a lot, as usual, any of my conversations with you. So for those listeners, gdeltproject.org is where you go. And, um, you know, we're really looking forward to seeing what, how you answer that I wonder question that Kalev is proposing to you all. Kalev, it's been superb to have you on the MongoDB podcast with us. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. simply fascinating conversation with Kalev. A wealth of information to take in there. Dare I say it? Nearly too much. It probably deserves a re-listen. But we will certainly have to get him back as a future guest. If this has piqued your interest, I highly recommend to check out the show notes for links to gdelproject.org and also to the MongoDB hackathon that was conducted on the MongoDB forums. You can check out all of the projects and submissions there too. Have you a story of interest to our listeners? We are always looking for guests on the MongoDB podcast, people with stories to tell in the world of software development and data. So if you feel you can contribute, do email us at podcast at mongodb.com and we'd love to hear from you. Do you know that during November and December, we have dot .local events and MongoDB days in many cities globally? If interested, you can find out more at mongodb.com forward slash events and see if there's an event near you. And the best part, all of the events are free to attend. Thank you so much again for listening. We really do appreciate it. If you do enjoy the episodes, please leave us a rating and even a review on whatever podcast platform you use. It really helps us. So for me, Shane McAllister and the rest of the podcast team, until next time, do take care. And thanks for listening.